you're new or you're a visitor, my name is Adam, one of the pastors here, and, and uh, I love preaching the word, I love opening the scriptures, I believe that all the authority, all the power, all the beauty is, is in the inspired text as God has given it to us. There's so much going on in these passages we get to preach together. And so Romans 14 is where we're going. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Ushers are coming down the aisle right now, and we'd love to just give you a Bible. If you don't own a Bible, take that home. It's our gift. This morning is part two of a, a two-part section where we're studying this really long passage near the end of Romans where Paul is starting to talk to the church about how important it is for us to work towards relational harmony in our church family. It's really interesting if you look at the New Testament and you just notice how often the New Testament writers focused on relationships in the church, there was a massive focus put there. It's interesting. I did a study one year where I, 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 I compared it. How often does Paul or one of the writers focus on our relationships with outsiders in evangelism versus our relationships within the church and fighting for relational harmony? The amount of ink spilled on that topic in the church is astronomical. Really interesting. It's as if Paul recognized there's a fundamental connection between our relationships with one another and our message. Our relationships communicate. They either reinforce what we're saying about Jesus or they don't reinforce what we're saying about Jesus. Does that make sense? And we want to be the kind of church where our relationships preach where people look at the way we, we, we treat one another and think there's massive cohesion between the content of their relationships and the gospel that they're communicating. A couple years ago, Kathy and I went to her 25th high school reunion. It was the first and last time we will ever go to a high school reunion. Uh, it, was by, it was by far the most awkward experience of my entire life. I'm not kidding you. I'm like the guy, I, I can usually take awkward social set situations and try to turn them for good. I, all my skills failed me in this one. Kathy went to high school in downtown Portland at Lincoln High School. If you know anything about Lincoln, it's very, very kind of, uh, uh, it's old money community, you know, lots of really powerful people from the West Hills. Um, but Kathy grew up on the east side of the river. She was an east side girl. And her stories about high school were always about how hard it was for east side kids to break into west side culture. And boy, did I see that at her high school reunion. Let me tell you, we, we, it was downtown at some really nice hotel. We get up to the top floor, the doors of the elevator open, and there's this massive sign, and it says, welcome, class of 90. Do the math on how old we are, but anyway. Welcome, class of 90, and all guests. And we're like, great, we feel welcome. We walk in, and from that moment on, we felt completely unwelcome. It was a fascinating... We're, we're interacting with, we're trying to interact with people, but it became very evident none of Kathy's East Side friends were there. So a lot of them backed out last minute. And so there we are, we're, we're trying to work, walk around the room and build connections with people, just getting ghosted, ignored. It was 
odd. There was a moment where I was sitting with Kathy at a table and no one else was sitting at the table. Have you ever been in that situation? It's like the worst feeling in the world. And we're sitting there for like 15 minutes, totally alone. Suddenly this really sweet couple comes walking over to the table and we're like, Kathy, we're popular. Oh, this is so great. They come over to the table and this is what they say. They say, can we take these chairs over to this table over here? And they leave and go over to the cool kid table. And there we are. So we finally, we left. We get back, the elevator's closing. And it said, welcome class of 90. And I thought, amazing. The sign said, welcome. But the people said, you're not welcome. Isn't that interesting? Paul would say the same thing to a church family. Paul would say, you know, it's possible for a church to speak the gospel with their words, but then turn right around and unspeak the gospel with the quality of their relationships. And so River West Church, let's never unspeak the gospel through the way we relate to each other. Amen? That's like my headline this morning. Let's make sure that we're the kind of church that never unsays the gospel through the content of our community. In chapters 14 and 15 of Romans, Paul is essentially warning the Christians in Rome. He's saying, you Romans, you know, you gather together and you believe the gospel. I know you do. And when you get together, you preach the gospel. You open the Bible. Someone teaches. Someone talks about Christ. Someone lifts up grace. Someone highlights the death and resurrection of Jesus you believe the gospel, you preach the gospel, you speak the gospel in your teaching and in your, and in your, in your preaching, but then you're unsaying all of that because you're despising and you're judging one another and you're dividing over these petty, low-level, non-essential conflicts in your community. This is happening in Rome. And so in the passage this morning, we're going to finish 13, or chapter 14. Paul is basically, he's going to give away some absolute gems, all right? This text we're looking at, starting in verse 13 of chapter 14, some of the most profound and practical instruction for how to build relationships that preach. That's what we're going to build here, relationships that preach. We want to be people who communicate Jesus through our relationships. But here's the thing. The text we have is really long. We're going to go from verse 13 all the way into 15. It's long and it's a little bit repetitive. Paul circles back. So what I've done this morning is I broke this down into four headings, all right? I'm going to call these four commitments that I want us to make as a church. Four commitments we need to make together that if we did these commitments, we would become the kind of church where our relationships communicate Jesus. Amen? Here is commitment number one, and then I'll read the verses. Commitment number one goes like this. We gladly give up our rights for the sake of love. Now look at it. Romans 14, verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Now remember from last Sunday, the issue that was dividing the Romans 
was issues over unclean practices. There were Jewish Christians who were still very sensitive. They were Torah-keeping Jewish Christians, and they still felt sensitivity in their conscience about certain foods, wine, uh, unkosher, they, 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 you know, whether it was pork, meat served in markets, and even some of the holy days. And then there were Gentile Christians. Paul calls these the strong in faith. The Jewish Christians, he calls the weak in faith. They, their, their conscience was free. Here's Paul saying, I'm, I'm part of that strong. I don't believe any of this is unclean. But that was the issue. We're talking really low-level issues, totally dividing the church. Paul says, verse 14, I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. Isn't that interesting? For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Skip down to verse 20, because Paul's going to repeat the same idea. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is in clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Isn't that fascinating? So you see what Paul's doing in this passage? He's saying... On the one hand, he's saying, look, verse 14, look at verse 14. He's saying, I am almost completely convinced that there's nothing wrong with drinking a glass of wine or eating bacon, hallelujah, praise Jesus. I, I know for a fact, there's biblically, there's nothing wrong with that, Paul says, but wait a minute, I have sisters and brothers in the church for whom they have a very sensitive conscience about that. And their conscience is about their own relationship with Jesus. Meaning when they, they think drinking a glass of wine or, or eating meat is a violation of cleanliness and they want to glorify Jesus. And so Paul says, this is, this is a problem. This is, this is, and so what happens is if you Gentile Christians, if you walk into the room flaunting your freedom, you can actually wound their conscience. You can actually harm your brother or sister, even in the act of exercising your liberty. You Gentile Christians, Paul would say, when you show up to community group with that BLT and you're just crushing that thing, the Jewish brothers and sisters are, they're being grieved by that. It's fascinating. And Paul says, what's the solution? What's the way through? It's, it's absolutely unambiguous. Paul says, although the strong are correct, your view is right, and I share your view. Here's the thing. Defer to your weaker brother. Defer to them. Check your own liberty. Gladly give up your rights. And do it for the sake of love. Because you love them. This is so powerful. Friends, you know what this, kind of, what this kind of living would do in the life of our church? Astounding. Imagine, here's an illustration. Imagine a young woman shows up to our church. She comes from another, uh, another part of the country or perhaps another part of the world. And, um, and for whatever reason, she has a very sensitive conscience about drinking alcohol, which by the way, many Christians do. 
Maybe it was where she was raised. Maybe she was raised in a more legalistic church. Maybe she grew up in a home where alcohol abuse was always prevalent. So she has a very sensitive conscience. Whatever the explanation, she, her conscience tells her drinking alcohol is not something that honors Jesus. And she shows up in, in a community where by and large as a church, we recognize that in moderation, consuming alcohol is, is not specifically prohibited in scripture, okay? But let's say she shows up and she joins our young adult community who are a bunch of winos, let's be honest. No, I'm kidding, <laughs> they're not. But let's just say the young adult community, I love the young adult community, let's say they're out and they don't, they're not tuned in to her sensibilities. So they begin, they begin having wine or something and not being a sensitive to her spirit. What Paul is saying is they could actually, even not even being aware of it, harm her conscience because she watches the whole group participating in something and maybe because of peer pressure or she doesn't want to stand out, there's a lack of sensitivity, she begins to do something not because she's convinced that it's okay, but because everyone else is doing it. And Paul says that could actually cause her to stumble in her faith because now she's started down a road where she's doing something not because her conscience is clear, but because others are doing it. Paul would say, the way of love, look at, look, at the, look at verse 15. He would say, the way of love is a way that says, I'm never gonna disregard my sister's conscience. I'm never gonna ignore that. I'm never gonna look down on her. I'm gonna be sensitive. Is there a time to have a conversation about these things? Try to persuade her? Absolutely. But in the meantime, love for my sister always limits my liberty. I'm always willing to limit my own liberty for her sake. This is a powerful teaching. Look at verse 15. Paul says, he says, how do you know this is a fact? He says, look at the example of Jesus. Paul always does this. I didn't read this yet. The second half of 15. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. Look at this. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Are you gonna destroy your neighbor by insisting on drinking wine or eating something, knowing that it could actually harm her? This is a person that Jesus died for. This is so fascinating. I think what Paul is doing here is he's saying, Christ would say, I gave up my life to save your neighbor. Are you not willing to give up that kind of that low level freedom for, for her good or his good? Jesus would say, I gave up all of the rights of heaven. I laid down all of my liberties, all my rights to enter your world, to save that sister in Christ. And you're not willing to lay down these low level liberties for her good. This is very, very powerful teaching. And what I wanna do is I wanna press this a little bit deeper right now because I think it's very important for us to pay attention at times to the cultural air that we breathe, okay? Think about our culture. There's very few statements that are as countercultural today than a statement like, we gladly give up our rights for the sake of love. Think about it. <laughs> that, is not, that is not our culture's way. 
I lay down my, I will gladly lay down my liberties for the sake of another. It's very countercultural. I've been thinking this week about how we live in a culture that idolizes autonomy, personal freedom. I'm always self-actualizing. It's all about me and my identity and my autonomy. Sin number one in our culture is anything that violates my personal rights. Whereas the gospel says, sin number one is anything that harms the well-being of the community. And so this week I was thinking about this and thinking, I've been reading a lot about anxiety because we're having an anxiety forum. I'll put up a slide in just a minute about this. But So I've been thinking a lot about anxiety and how we're living in a culture where, do you know anxiety is just shooting up? It's startling. It's on a massive rise, and anxiety is mostly on the rise for young people in our culture. This is becoming like, this is becoming like a global thing. Young people struggling with depression and anxiety. And I thought, what's causing this? Carl Truman, who's sort of a social scientist, he wrote a book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And basically what Carl Truman argues is there's been a fundamental shift in the way that we develop our sense of identity. And it's crushing young people particularly. It's crushing them and causing all this anxiety. He writes, he talks about two different views. I'm going to put this up. Don't get uh, freaked out by the words. He talks about the difference between mimesis and poiesis. And here's what he says. He says, a, a mimetic view of the world regards the world as having a given order and a given meaning, and therefore it sees human beings as being required to discover that meaning and then conform themselves to it. And that, that's vastly how societies have thought about identity. There's meaning, there's structure, there's order in the world, and human beings figure out what all that meaning and structure is, and then we develop our sense of identity in response to that. But recently there's been a shift. Carl Truman calls it poiesis. He says, poiesis, by way of contrast, sees the world as so much raw material out of which meaning and purpose can be created by the individual. This is different. So for most of human history, the, the mimetic view has dominated, and it's only recently that we've made a shift. And here's what he said. A poetic world is one in which transcendent purpose collapses into the imminent, and in which given purpose collapses into any purpose I choose to create or decide for myself. Human nature, one might say, becomes something individuals invent for themselves. This is a massive shift. The messaging has been, to young people especially, your sense of identity and autonomy is sacrosanct. And not only that, it's entirely on your shoulders to determine what it is. And the idea has been, if that's freedom. You tell a young person, you get to determine your own identity, but it's totally on your shoulders to determine what it is. The idea has been that will free them, but it hasn't freed them. It's trapped them in a prison where they're constantly having to figure out, how do I express myself? Who am I? And you know what's happening? Anxiety, depression, through the roof, through the roof. And so we care about this because the gospel is so countercultural. The gospel says the community, the, the health of the community is the priority number one. 
And as individuals, we, we serve that. So we're gonna have a forum. I'm gonna put up this slide. I, wanna, I, I would love it if all of the church came to this. We're gonna talk a little bit about anxiety. If I, right now, if I said, raise your hand if you have struggled with anxiety or if you know someone closely who struggled with anxiety, every single hand in this room would go up. Amen? Every hand. And so we gotta talk about this. How does the gospel help the church help people who are struggling with anxiety? We're gonna bring in an expert. Her name's Tara Matson. She's incredible. She's gonna present a little bit and then there'll be a Q&A. So that's Sunday, March 5th, 6 p.m. right here in our sanctuary. There's childcare for that. Join us for that. It's gonna be a wonderful time. That's, that's theme number one. We, we gladly give up our rights for the sake of love. Here's commitment number two. Really important. We live with a kingdom perspective on the non-essentials. All right? Kingdom perspective. Look at verses 16 to 19. Paul says, So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual a building. See that? Paul's talking about a kingdom perspective. You can always tell a person with a kingdom perspective, all right? And here's how you can tell if you have it. You know the difference between the really important things and the really low-level stuff. You're able to figure it out. Have you ever heard the phrase, the main thing is to keep the main thing, the main thing. Have you ever heard that? That's kingdom perspective. Kingdom people know the main thing is to keep the main thing, the main thing. I'm not going to major in the minors. Why? Because I have a kingdom perspective. I know what really matters in this world. And I don't want in our church people to be fighting and dividing over really low-level, non-essential stuff. But only people with a kingdom perspective can tell the difference. So look at verse 17. Because Paul almost uses a little bit of sarcasm in this verse. He's like, do you honestly think that the kingdom of God is about bacon and wine? You know, it's like the kingdom of God is not ultimately about that. That's low level. Stop fighting about that. The kingdom of God is about righteousness. He goes way up into the, into the ether. He says, think high level. High-level doctrines, high-level priorities, high-level values. Righteousness in Christ, peace, joy in the Holy Spirit. You focus on that stuff, all those little things, they just become, they just kind of, they slide into the background. Paul says, that is the kind of church that I want you to be. Have you ever been in a conversation with someone and you're trying to explain something and they hyper-focus in on one tiny little detail that was not even your main point. And you're like, why are you focused on that? I was trying to communicate this. This is what Paul's saying. He's saying kingdom people, they, 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 they have their eyes lifted up to bigger things. They don't major in the minors. But also Paul would say, now think about this, they don't minor in the majors. Do you get the difference? I'm not gonna major in the little stuff, but also 
I'm gonna make sure I don't have a minor in high level truths, okay? I know a lot of Christians who are like reading at a first grade level on some pretty big, important Christian doctrines. Last Sunday, I sort of went off up here, okay? I got, I got a little agitated, and I, I made some statements about Christians who can talk for hours about the love languages and personality tests, okay? And I'm looking out there, and you guys are all mad at me. I felt bad. I'm like, that was divisive. I shouldn't have done that. And then I went home, and I was like, Kathy, did I ever do it? And she was like, no, you should have been more mean-spirited. This is my wife. She has cancer, so give her permission to be a little agitated. But she was like, you should have gone off because, you know, Christians are hyper-focusing on really low-level stuff. And she was like, you need to talk about a few more things because we're, we're, we're majoring in the minors. So I'm going to talk about a few more just in case you weren't agitated last week. <laughs> now I'm really going to insult you, okay? I know Christians who can talk for hours about politics. In fact, that's all they talk about. Politics on the left, politics on the right, I don't care. But they can talk for hours. But then I say, talk to me a little bit about justification by faith, which is what that word righteousness means. And they can talk for 30 seconds or less. And it's usually, what does justification by faith mean? Okay, I don't, I don't want that. I don't want us to be a church that's able to talk endlessly about low-level things, low-level doctrines. I know Christians who can talk about the end times and chart it out and, and maps and, you know, uh, the, you know, there's helicopters that represent things in the book of Revelation and they could talk for hours about that. And then I say, tell me about the peace that Christ has purchased in our relationship with God and they cannot explain it to me. We've majored in the minors, and also we've minored in the majors. I want you to major in the majors. I want you to become deeply theological. I'm unapologetically saying to the church, learn Christian theology, the high-level stuff. Amen? Read, read books. Read really good books and learn how to talk about these big things. Paul says righteousness, peace, joy. That's the stuff of the kingdom. All that little stuff, you can talk about it. You can debate about it, fine. But let's not let it split the church. Not let it split the church. Okay, commitment, I'm done going off. We're done with that. Here's commitment number three. I love this. We know when to keep our views to ourselves. We know, this is what I want us to be a church. We know when to keep our views to ourselves. It's really interesting. Look at verse 22. Paul says, the faith that you have, keep it between yourself and God. We know, when, we know when it's time to keep something to ourselves. Isn't that interesting? Now, Paul's not talking about your general Christian faith. He's not saying no one should know that I'm a Christian. Paul's referring back, he's talking about that faith that the strong had that gave them freedom to enjoy things like meat and wine. That faith that they had, Paul says, sometimes you need to figure out when just to keep your opinions to yourself. Isn't that interesting? I'll read it again. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Friends, it's okay sometimes for me to keep some of my opinions to myself. You may or may not have noticed this, but I very rarely get up here and use the pulpit to share my 
personal opinions about all kinds of things that are happening. That is not my role. My role is to focus on Christ, the gospel, and the word of God. Okay? And I, I get it wrong. And I get it wrong, and so do you. But, but so I'm, calling, I'm saying this to you too. Just because you have an opinion about something does not necessarily mean that everyone in your life needs to know about it, right? It's like we have this internal equation that goes like this. I think it, therefore it must be amazing and I should tell everyone about it, right? That equation breaks down often, okay? Just because I think it doesn't mean it's profound or amazing. And certainly I don't have to always in every conversation set the agenda by sharing all of my personal views about all this low-level stuff. Believe it or not, that can actually begin to tear away at the health of a community. Really wise Christians know, you know what, I'm, this, this is, I'm, if somebody asks me, fine, we'll talk about it. I'm not saying you, it's, it's not okay to have opinions about things. Totally. It's totally okay to talk about it. But learn to decipher when my constantly bringing this to this person is actually beginning to harm her faith or harm his faith or wear him down. Paul says, learn the difference. It's interesting. Look at verse 22. He says, um, he goes on, blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Paul's saying, basically what he's saying there is he's saying, look, if your conscience is clear about something, some practice, some, some low-level non-essential, then practice that. Be, practice it before Jesus with a clear conscience. If you, if you have a clear conscience about enjoying a glass of wine for dinner, enjoy it. Clear conscience. And But then he goes on, look at verse 23. He says, but... Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Isn't that interesting? Paul's saying another Christian who has a sensitive conscience, if she were to partake in that thing, Paul would actually call it sin because she's doing something deliberately against her own conscience. And so Paul says really ultimately, and some of these low-level non-essentials, they come down to my relationship with Jesus. Can I stand before Jesus and think this thing or participate in this thing and do it with a clean conscience? And it's not always gonna be the same, even in a gospel community. And so we love each other and we care for each other. And that leads me to my fourth and, and last commitment. I really want you to think about this. We prioritize each other's spiritual health over our own pleasures. We care more about each other. I care more about you than I care about my own pleasures or rights or liberties. Look what Paul does. Chapter 15, verse one. We who are strong, we have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. You see that? Paul's saying gospel churches, they're always thinking about their neighbor. This is fascinating. Why? Because we have a leader. We have a savior who modeled this for us. Verse three, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, 
the reproaches of those who fell upon you fell on me. Notice every single one of those verses has the word pleasure in it. Look at your Bible. Every verse has the word pleasure. It's so interesting. The word pleasure, it could be translated as satisfy. Paul's basically saying, in the church, because I follow Jesus, my number one priority is not satisfying my own agenda or liberties or pleasures or desires or whatever I want to do. My number one agenda is always satisfying the spiritual well-being of the brother or sister sitting next to me. That's what I care about most. I care about you and you care about me and you care about the person on either side of you. I'm gonna invite the worship team up because this is like the perfect transition to communion. Think about, just for a minute, think about with me, Jesus. If anyone had the right to please himself, it was Jesus Christ. And yet, what did he do? What does Mark say? Mark, Mark quotes Jesus saying, the son of man came not to be served, which would have totally made sense, but to serve and lay down his life for others. Or what did the apostle Paul say in the book of Philippians? Paul said that although Jesus was in the form of God, equal with God in every way, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He humbled himself in order to serve. Here's the one person in the universe who actually had the prerogative to always satisfy his own desires or his own agendas, and he laid all that down to save and sanctify and radically transform not only me, not only you, but the person sitting on your left and the person sitting on your right. What would it be like to be a part of a church where every member, and by the way, if you attend regularly, you, I view you to be a member of our church. What it would be like if every single one of us, priority number one, Every time I entered this space, my number one priority was, I care most about the well-being of the people on my left and right. I love them so much. And I love them because that's how much Jesus loves them. And what would it be like every time we came to the table, we weren't just thinking, this meal is for me. But we were actually realizing, this meal is also for my neighbor. This is the extent to which Jesus went to love and save my neighbor. Jesus cares deeply about the spiritual well-being of my neighbor. And so, so do I. Whatever rights I have to give up, whatever liberties I have to lay down, if there's times where I just need to close my mouth and listen, if there's times where I need to ask my friend what her opinion is on this, because I've done all the talking, if there's times where I need to not participate in something because I know it's harming my neighbor's conscience, I gladly lay it down, Jesus. Countercultural, good. Let's be countercultural. Let's be the kind of community where people out there leave a culture that's all about individualism and they come into a culture that's all about beautiful community and see how that changes their lives. Amen. Let's become that kind of church. Will you bow your heads with me?
Father, we love Jesus. We are thankful for Jesus. We believe in Jesus. We want to follow Jesus. And we want to be like Jesus. And would you help make that a reality this morning? Even as we eat and drink in this moment, as we remember the sacrifice of Christ, I pray it would nourish us spiritually, but also change us, remind us what a sacrificial life looks like, even for us. This morning as we eat, Lord, we not only want to think about what this means for us, but we want to think and pray for our neighbors. That person on my left, that person on my right, I pray for them, Jesus, that you would encourage them I don't know what they're going through necessarily, but you do. Would you bless them? Would you feed their soul this morning? Can I be a part of blessing them, Lord God? So that it truly becomes a family meal today. And all for the glory of Christ. And all for the spread of the gospel, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.